This is Jesus uh, in the middle of the Lord's prayer, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you wash, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret." And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then 1 Corinthians 9, starting at the 24th verse. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. For every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it moves with your own living power. This is not something that was locked away in time and space many, many years ago but instead moves towards us and pierces us. Father, I pray that our ears would be open and our hearts would be soft, that we would receive your word, your invitation, your correction, that our hearts would 
spring into life and to flame with love for you. We trust that you'll do this to the praise of Jesus. Amen. You know, we are, we're in this, uh, the middle of Lent. This is the third Sunday in Lent. Easter is April 4th, a uh, little under a month away. And uh, at this point, uh, Ash Wednesday is a few weeks ago. And uh, that was nice, but it's over, right? It's gone. And we're kind of like in the middle uh, of Lent. And if you are fasting with us and doing these other things in our rule of life, it just kind of feels like, man, you know, Lent is long, right? It's, it's kind of long. Easter is like really far from now. Um, and this is kind of impinging upon my life a bit. It can feel tiring. Um, and we want to keep talking and keep bringing this to our minds and keep embracing this because it's actually in the middle of the hard times is when those things press in on us and really start to form us. Um, it's sort of, as Paul is talking about and we'll get into, it's sort of like physical training. If you stop when it's easy, then you're not going to be physically trained. Um, and if you have said from the beginning, actually, Lent is too long, and you said, I'm not going to do this rule of life thing. Well, guess what? You're like halfway in now. Might as well come in and join us. The water is fine, really. And uh, you can participate even if you hadn't until now. <clears throat> Last week, we talked about how the work of Christ in redeeming us includes our bodies, and our bodies are important. That's why we've put this component in this corporate rule of life to involve your body in worshiping God uh, and whatever that might look like for you. And, and today we're going to talk about kind of the other side of that coin, <clears throat> about the significance of our body and how this spiritual discipline, fasting, um, begins to speak to that and how it connects to the totality of who we are. So if you didn't hear last week about how the body is important and how Jesus taking on flesh is important, you know, you should, you know, previously on, you should catch up on, on, on that uh, later. And it might connect some dots for you. Uh, you know, I, I didn't uh, grow up in a, a time and a place where fasting was a necessarily regular part of every Christian's spiritual life. Uh, I'd heard of fasting before, but the super spiritual people were the ones who did fasting. The, the ones who like prayed all the time, which I knew wasn't me, and I didn't see how I was going to become like them. Um, they would invite people in the youth group to whatever, fast for a week or something. I was like, okay, I'm, I'll try a fast for a week. I, and I made it two and a half days before the large tray of hot dogs at youth group broke me, and I, I could go no further. Um, and I, I think that... If, if in our time and place uh, fasting is talked about at all, it's for those super spiritual people. Um, and really, that's it. Fasting, though, is a, a thing that Christians experienced um, for a long time at large. Fasting is also something that lots of non-Christian people do. Uh, it's a thing that people in other religions do. For example, in uh, Islam, 
every year in Ramadan, uh, Muslims around the world fast all day, no food or water, anything to drink all day while the sun, while the sun is up. Um, what we might call, consider like mystics have used fasting to heighten their spiritual experience. Now, in our country and time and place, you're probably just as likely to have heard of fasting as an approach to improving your health or losing weight. Uh, neither of which I can speak to at all and will not be speaking to. I mean, clearly, I have no authority on that subject. You can speak to your physicians about that. But Christians have said, this is a tool in our tool belt for a long time. I was just reading this week in something called the Didache, which is an early, early, early Christian teaching. Um, it's a, a sort of small manual of church practice from the early 2nd century. A part of the Didache is instruction and expectation that Christians will fast. Not, not once a week, twice a week. Two days out of every week they'll fast. Uh, it's said that John Wesley at various points, the great founder of Methodism, that he would not ordain people unless they were fasting as the Didache instructed Two days out of every week. And I, I would dare say that fasting is probably not, if you're like me, a part of a regular spiritual practice. That it is, it is maybe something you know what it is, but you're not sure that it's for you or for anybody that you know. So what in the world do you do it for? Why would you do it? And certainly, you can hear in Jesus' words uh, that he says, you know, when you fast. He, he doesn't say, like, let me talk to you about this idea of fasting and maybe whether you consider it. He uses the language of when you do, because it is such a common spiritual practice. But here, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount brings us to a place of hearing what Jesus' heart is, both for prayer and fasting together, because they are really and truly together. They're meant to hold hands in our life, and they hold hands in Jesus' sermon. And what he brings us to is the state of our heart, spending time in what he calls the secret place, where the Father both hears your prayers, and he sees your fast, and he your Father in heaven cares for you and nourishes you and protects you. And he hears the desires of your heart. So Jesus removes uh, the external focus that many of us might have, that many of Jesus' listeners had, that you would look awful, that you'd have you know, ashes on your forehead and wear uh, torn clothes. And he says, you know, don't do any of that stuff to, to the world that can only see on the outside, let it look like you're just fine. But on the inside, what you have is, in essence, a secret, a secret life between you and the Father. And let there the Father do his business in you. John Calvin, um, great theologian um, from the 16th century, he has this set of uh, instructions called the Institutes of Christian Religion, which is great, 
Um, not always the easiest reading, but it is for people who are living their life in the church. And one of his sections is on fasting. And he commends fasting for people and encourages it as a part of spiritual life. And he says fasting is really for three purposes, uh, which really go in line with what Jesus is saying. The first is that you fast to control your appetites, what he calls subduing the flesh. The second is to prepare, especially for a life of prayer. For, for a, a, a time of prayer, for a specific thing or reason, you ought to, it is good to fast before you pray. And the third is when calamity falls, when a plague comes, when a natural disaster happens, when there's war at hand. Enter into a season of repentance, prayer, fasting, and repentance that God might relieve uh, the suffering of his people. Now, I've, I've never experienced that third reason. I've never, that's never been a response when any tragedy has been in, in a church that I've experienced. I mean, of all times, we're actually living in a plague now. And I still don't know too many people whose response was like, hey, you know what we should do is probably fast. Um, I'm going to leave that third reason aside. It's good. It's, it's biblical. It's throughout scriptures. I'm going to leave that third reason aside. But these other two things, that we ought to subdue our flesh, fight the appetites of our body, and prepare for prayer, is where I think that we as a people who are trying to endure this season of our lives, both, both in Lent and in a plague, ought to pay attention and to consider this tool that should be in our tool belt. We are the people who need a secret life with God to sustain us in times of isolation and trial and tribulation. And the way that works is, is helpfully illustrated by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul uses this metaphor of athletic training. And he says, uh, there's only one person who can win a race. So the athletes, they all train hard. And they do everything they can to be the one who will, what he says is, is get the wreath, which is the crown, the winner's crown that you got for winning the race. And he says, in the same way, you ought to discipline your own bodies so that you can attain the prize. Now, he's not saying that, you know, we're all here and only one of us will get the crown. And so it becomes like survivor, Christian edition. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying with the way that the dedication of an athlete who has to beat everyone, that kind of uh, focus and ferocity and tenacity, you should take that same spirit and also pursue spiritual formation. And he, he roots it in the body. He says, you should discipline your body so that you can obtain the prize, so that you can take the crown. And then he gives us a helpful illustration of why this kind of training is necessary. And he points to Israel. He points to Israel who has been rescued out of slavery. They have pass through the Red Sea. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about being baptized into Moses. They pass through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And then what he does is he lists all the ways that Israel failed. And what he says is they were consumed by their appetites. 
They were consumed by their appetites for all kinds of things. It led them to idolatry, to grumbling, to sexual immorality. And these are all things that are rooted in the uncontrolled desires of the heart. And this is what fasting attacks. This is why we have to give ourselves over to the discipline of the body to push back against the powers of idolatry. Because, see, last week we said the body is good and it's part of the redemptive work of God. But what we're also not saying is everything that you feel and naturally desire in your body and beyond your body, in your emotions, what Paul would largely call the flesh, which is both your physical body and your natural spiritual life that you're born with, just the desires that you feel, just because you feel them does not make those desires good. In fact, what he says is they are, they are a riptide, a current away from God. And if you never, ever subject them to Jesus, they will take you to disastrous places. Terrible, terrible places. And you and I need to hear this because we live in a world that has constantly been telling us to listen to your appetites and do whatever your appetite tells you to do. We learn that message from the moment we are born. We are born to terrorize our parents until they feed our bellies. And there, the cry of a baby soon puts everyone into subjection to their schedule. And their, the appetites that they, their schedule of their appetites doesn't even have any respect for night or day or for a.m. or p.m. It is, I am hungry, fill my belly. And look, babies are not doing anything wrong. They're doing what they're supposed to do. But we grow up out of being a baby. We learn to sleep better hours and then act like a baby. We behave the same way. I have my appetite. I must fulfill it. I am hungry for this thing. I will eat this thing. I schedule my time in my day around my literal eating, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I will cancel a meeting with you if you want to meet at 1230. That is not generally acceptable to me. I am hungry at 1230. I am not wanting to meet with you. If you want to eat and meet, fine, we can do that. Eat first. But then we also do the same thing beyond food, right? Those are not the only natural appetites that we have. We have appetites for all kinds of things. Comfort, validation, security, pride, recognition from other people. These are things that we don't have to coach ourselves into. They flow naturally out of our spiritual bellies. And we organize our lives around those appetites. And what fasting does is take away things that we have put in to comfort ourselves and to feed in with unthinking response the, the appetites of our flesh. The purpose of fasting is to make us realize we are hungry for more than what we recognize and not nearly hungry enough for the things that we were made for. 
So I, I'm fasting from a, a particular couple of things during this season of Lent. And I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine. I don't need those things. But I have found that in the, the normal rhythms of my day, I just naturally have this kind of groove worn into my brain. So that when I get to the moment where I don't have the thing that I have been fasting from, I run into this speed bump and say, oh, I really, I miss that. I really do. I'm fine. I am fine. But I miss that. And fasting begins to work not when I post about that feeling on Instagram or when I make much of a public appearance of my own engagement, but to in that moment go to the secret place that Jesus has described. And I tell the Father, I'm not nearly hungry enough for you. I do not crave you like I crave this thing. Would you come and help me hunger for what I ought to hunger for? Would you help me be thirsty for you the way that I ought to be, the way that I thirst for this thing? And then I move on. I move on with my day. And I forget. Remember, we talked about weeks ago, the fundamental way that you and I often live our lives is to forget that God even exists. We are forgetful people. And the moment comes in the next part of my day where I, I instinctively reach for that thing and I'm reminded again, oh, I don't nearly miss you so much as I should. I miss this thing way too much compared to how much I miss you. And I turn to that secret place in my heart and ask the Father to do something in that secret place that he would set me to right. And he would fill me up with his life. Paul's warning is that if you don't attend to that hunger that you ought to have as somebody who follows God, you will in slow and steady ways be going the way of the idolater. You will, you will whether knowing it or not, build your life around and bow down and worship to things that otherwise were just good. Things that were just good and, and gifts have become taskmasters and they'll enslave you and the most terrible thing about it is you often don't even realize it the Israelites just sat down and said let us eat and let us drink and let us be merry all the while swept up in idolatry but Paul offers hope he doesn't just say here, be better at fasting. Be better at prayer. Just crank down harder on this spiritual lever and do better. He, in fact, gives a better word. He said, what you're experiencing, the temptations that you're experiencing, they're common to everybody. And God will provide for you a way of escape. You don't have to be owned by your appetite, by the things that you have put in your, in, in your world to comfort you. 
that have formed the framework of your days. Instead, God will provide a way of escape for you. And the good news is, is that it's Jesus. Jesus becomes the way that we might escape the insidious grasping of our appetites and instead be free. Jesus wants freedom for his people. And when we look at Jesus and we see him as the one who went into the wilderness for 40 days to fast before entering into public ministry, we do not set up our 40 days of Lent and say, Jesus was our example and now we have to be like him just like that. That's what Jesus most wanted was us to be able to do the things that he could do. What we confess is we can't do all the things that Jesus did. But what we do remember is that Jesus did them for us on our behalf. When I am hungry, when I am fasting, I am called to remember that Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted and overcame the devil and did so for me. When I am thirsty for the things that I am fasting from, I am called to remember that when Jesus approached the cross and experienced himself thirst, and he said it, he confessed it, I am thirsty. He experienced the thirst that I should feel and often do feel on my own lips for me and on my behalf. And when I am afraid that I'm going to be locked into the prison of my own desires and, and thrown down into the tomb of idolatry, I can remember that God took up my flesh, that he might be crucified on my behalf and in my place, and he might be pulled down into my tomb, that I might be able to enter with him and exit with him in his resurrected glory. The way of escape for us is not just to be better and try harder at spiritual disciplines. This is not this rule of life is not an invitation for you to construct this sort of magical thinking with God. If you do the right things with the right maneuvers and sing the right song with the right incantation, then God will be forced to do what you want him to do. God is not forced to do anything that he wants, doesn't want to do, certainly not by me or by you. We do not need to earn God's approval or make God do what we want. We are instead offering up ourselves as a, as a vessel that needs to be cleaned out and expanded and ready to receive all that God has already done and already expressed his willingness to give. We fast and we pray in the secret place, not because we are desperately hoping that God would approve of us, but we fast and we pray that we might more and more grow to better hear and to receive what he has already set on the table for us. If you are here today, and you are realizing that you are imprisoned by your own appetites and desires. The response is clear today. You need to repent. 
If you have lived your life both for your physical appetites, your emotional appetites, your own mental and spiritual desires, and you have decided to solve all your problems for yourself, you need to repent today. You need to come home and receive what God has done for you. And if you are here today and you say, I'm already Christian, I've already done that, I still feel like I am caught in this sort of hamster wheel of desire. And I I am trapped where I am. I am not here offering today a prescription for you. If you would fast twice a day like the Didache said, and you do all the things that John Calvin said, boom, you're going to be all better. That is not what I am doing. Today, the first word of the prescription for your healing is to look at Jesus. To see that he is the way of escape for you, not you. You will never be the way of escape. He is the way of escape. And your pathway to liberation begins when you come back to the simple truth of the gospel and you let the good news that Jesus Christ has for your sake, in your place, on your behalf, taken up all of your hungering and thirsting and death itself that you might be free. And God will with you, as Paul said, with you in the secret place that Jesus describes slowly turn you from a couch potato to the athlete. Not because of the strength of your own hands, but because of his. He will be faithful to you even when you are faithless. And in so doing, demonstrate his own strength and bring everybody's eyes to turn and look at Jesus where everything else grows strangely dim for the beauty of what you see. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the way that you've gifted so much to us, that you've invited us to see you, to to look at you, and to, to keep coming back to you, to have that vision restored and corrected Father, I pray for everybody who is here or watching that is, uh, is realizing that they have lived for the, the own, their own appetites of their flesh. Their life has been determined and dictated by their cravings. And God, I pray that you'd bring freedom to them. And that freedom will come by coming close to you. Not by the delusion that they themselves will will bust themselves out of prison, but instead only find their freedom in you. And Father, I pray for all those who have put their trust in you, who have pleaded with you time and again to free them from this or that idolatry. God, I pray that they would taste again of your mercy and they would draw upon the well, the infinite well of your life to move them through these wilderness lands. God, I pray that you would meet them in the quiet, secret places of their heart and that you would make us to be a people who habitually offer ourselves in prayer, praying what you taught us to pray, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done, trusting you to give us what we need. Help us to trust you, Lord Jesus. 
thank you for moving towards us and for us before we even could. Amen.